How are you? I'm good. Uh, you want to just get started? Yep. Go ahead. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I am two things. Number one, I'm your happy host, Sammy Yunan. And two, thrilled to be hanging out with Megan Dom, writer of The Problem With Everything, my journey through the new culture wars. Yes! I really dug this book. The Problem With Everything recaps, refutes, re-examines many of the conversations we're having from comedy to college campuses through a collection of dynamic essays. You're free to agree or disagree with what she's saying in the book, and she says a lot, but that's not the point or the value of the book. It's that you think. Sometimes thinking is more important than agreement because thinking is an unfolding process. When you take a flight, you arrive at your destination. That's agreement. Thinking, if we do it correctly and like really commit to it, is a journey. It's an airplane that doesn't land. It just keeps going. Sort of like this introduction. Here's my conversation with Megan. All right. So can you please introduce yourself a little bit of what you do and share your favorite thing about living in New York City? Oh, so um, I'm Megan Dom. I'm a writer, essayist, journalist. I've published six books. I um, was a columnist at the Los Angeles Times for more than a decade, from about 2005 to 2016. And uh, my latest book is called The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. And I live in New York City right now. And my favorite thing, I'm looking at it right now. I I love the view outside my window. I'm I'm amazingly lucky. I live in a in a in a building that I just love and I have an incredible view of the Hudson River and of a cemetery right outside. It's one of the few cemeteries actually in Manhattan. So mm-hmm. a lot of red tailed hawks going by and um just it's a great little spot. Well that's one of the subtler themes of your book too, is New York City and just the evolution of the city as you kinda of leave and go back come back, you know what I mean? Right. Well I did not grow up in the city and that's part of I think why I find it so magical. I, I grew up um, various places, mostly in New Jersey, just right outside of New York City. And so when you grow up in the suburbs, the city feels very far away and, and inaccessible. And so I was really, as a teenager, uh, I, I longed to live in Manhattan, and I thought that life was very romantic. So uh, when I came here after college, I lived here all during my 20s. and certainly living in New York City and the the economy of the city and the kind of um, the sort of mythology of creative life here and then the sort of impossibility of sustaining a creative life here if you weren't independently wealthy. Mm-hmm. Those were topics that I wrote about a lot in my 20s and, and into my 30s. Uh, and so, yeah, when I came, I was away for a long time in the Midwest and then in Los Angeles mostly, and I came back about four and a half years ago um, after getting divorced. And so I, I write in this new book about what it's like to come back uh, after being away for so long. And speaking of come back, Alanis Morissette now is on tour with Jagged Little Pill, which is now yes. the 25th anniversary. Are you going to any of the 25th anniversary shows? No, I hadn't I hadn't planned on it. Uh, I need to uh, investigate what, what that's all about. But yeah, I don't even think I've pulled out that record in a long time. But uh, I certainly listen to it a lot. <laughs> yeah, and I bring it up. You do talk about it in the in the uh, the book, the problem with I everything. Do. And there's a, a great line in it. You listen to the album after you come home. And you've had this really kind of odd date with a dinner companion. You're not really quite sure 
uh, what was going on there. And uh, your roommate responds to you and says, but hey, you keep showing up. You must be getting something out of it, which is a great line. And so it's like the same thing with the with the culture wars that you're kind of talking about. Like you you keep showing up to this culture, even though you have some issues and problems with it. Right. So you must be getting something out of it. Is that <laughs> That- right. Well, um, I, I guess what you're asking is, you know, why do we keep fighting these wars? Yeah. We must be getting something out of it. So, yeah, well, just for some context. So the scene that you allude to, I, I talk in the book about how when I was in my 20s, there was this um, man I knew who was in a, you know, prof- had a professional sort of relationship with him. And he was in a sort of, you know, position of power, not directly because I didn't work with him, but he was just somebody who was sort of fashioned himself as a mentor or somebody could help me who could help me and um, you know we would go out to lunch in a sort of professional way and then it kind of morphed into dinner and um, the boundaries just felt very fuzzy and and I nothing ever happened he never um, excuse me he never did anything in you know overtly inappropriate he never um, issued an ultimatum anything like that but I, the reason I talk about it in the book is because I talk about, you know, in the context of Me Too, a situation like that, um, I, if, if Me Too had been going on at that time in my life when I was in my 20s, I might have framed the situation differently in my mind. But instead, I just sort of went along with it and, and saw it as uh, uh, kind of like life in the big city. And, um, you know, I want to be really clear, if he had actually done something mm-hmm threatening or um, abusive in any way, this would be a very different conversation. But, uh, you know, I would sort of go on these dinners and feel icky about it and like, you know, why do I keep going? And so, yeah, so in one scene, I I go back to my apartment and I listen to Jagged Little Pill and then I go in and my roommate, you know, it was about midnight and she had come into the kitchen for something and I was like lamenting to her and grousing about having to go out to dinner with this guy. And she said just what you said. Well, you keep showing up, so you must be getting something out of it. And I think that that's, Yeah, and I think, you know, I talk about that in the context of the book, like there are different approaches, you know, especially, you know, there are generational divides within feminism, and and I keep asking myself, like, if these younger generations of women are seeing their experience through the lens of, you know, patriarchal hierarchies and, and, you know, feeling uh, feelings that they're being oppressed in certain ways, you know, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, some combination in between. But the question I keep asking is, what are they getting out of it? And maybe a lot, and maybe not as much as they should be. I, so th- the book is very much a, a self-interrogation. Uh, I don't really come down on one side or the other, which yeah. I think is both, both you know, in my opinion, the, the strength of the book, but I think people were so used to um, you know, black and white thinking now that I think it, that sort of perplexed some readers. Yeah, is that interrogation you're talking about where, like you said, you had this gray area relationship where, like you said, you felt icky, I think was the word you just used? Yeah. You were clearly uncomfortable, but dude wasn't necessarily doing anything like that was super, like you said, like he didn't like touch you or anything like that. So no. it's like, it's this weirder, like... So if Me Too hadn't happened, is that reflection, recontextualization, is that normal? Like a process that a lot of women go through and kind of go back and realize like, because when you're in your 20s, it's like you even mentioned it too, like in your 20s, like you're getting whistled out by construction workers. And part of that is like, right. okay, it's just life in the big city. I'm a young, fit girl. It's so be it, whatever. But then when you're like in your 45 or something, you're a little older, like, wait a minute, that was creepy. They really shouldn't be doing that. Like, is that a normal <laughs> process, I guess, that women go through? 
Yeah, um, and it's it is really hard to say because you know so much of the way we talk about power these days, it's very um, it's just very sort of lateral. It's it's like you know we assume that this particular group has more power. Men, you know, sort of by default have more power than women. Um, white people have more power than people of color. Heterosexual cisgender people have more power than than queer trans people whatever it is and you know that's just to me like a really simplistic way of thinking about things and it it denies the experience of the individual and so um you know i'm i'm curious now like when i see these women on on online you know complaining about the men who take up too much space on the subway seat or you know complaining about being catcalled on the street you know, it it is. I can understand that it's annoying to be catcalled on the street, and it can be threatening sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't think anything of it. But I would also point out that the men doing that don't necessarily have any power over you. My guess is nine times out of ten, they have very little power in life, which is why they act out by whistling at girls who walk down the street. So I I just I think that these things all need to be taken into account. Like power is shifting all the time in any given interaction. It's fluid. So I think like what a lot of the the Me Too conversation has become so diffuse. Um, and you know, it, it, on one hand, it's it's incredibly necessary. I I think Me Too is a net positive. Like I would never say otherwise. But you know, we get into a lot of just you know assuming that in any given interaction the woman is right and the man is wrong. And to me, that's a sexist assumption, mm-hmm. quite frankly. And as a feminist, I find it offensive. Yeah, it lacks a little bit of dignity as well, too. Yeah, it lacks nuance for sure. Yeah, and it, it doesn't give women any sort of agency. And, and it, you know, to assume that women have some kind of moral authority just by virtue of being women is sexist and it's also ridiculous like you know the you know like i say in the book if we're going to have this idea of toxic masculinity which i think is a phrase we need to get away from uh we need to also recognize that there's toxic femininity you know no no one has a monopoly on being an asshole yes (laughs) so yeah we need to remember that it is part of this too what you're talking about in terms of nuance because the conversations we do have, especially online, they kind of do involve a shorthand where right. everyone just assumes that everyone knows what we're talking about. Like when I say feminism, everyone assumes that there's some universal definition of feminism and that it's all clearly understood and that there's no interpretation. But this shorthand leads to a lot of uh, conflicts and a lot of friction. You're especially coming at this as a writer, so you understand the value of words and what they actually mean. So is that yeah. like shorthand short-circuiting the conversation a little bit? Right. And I mean, not not only is it shorthand, everything has become a meme now. Right. So Mm. it's like, you know, we have these we have these assumptions about the way the world works. And instead of like actually being parsed and and interrogated and and questioned, we just sort of turn it into an article of faith. We just assume that, that that women are automatically discriminated against in the workplace. We assume that a statistic like women make 79 cents on the dollar we assume that that's just unilaterally true, and then I call that a statistical slogan. You know, an, another statistical slogan is like one in five women will be raped during college. Okay, like that's actually never been true. The statistic is much more complicated and, and came from a very different place. But okay, these have been absorbed into 
into mainstream belief and they become articles of faith. And when they become articles of faith, then they become memes and they just become part of the air we breathe and what we start to assume about ourselves. And it's really dangerous because we're actually selling ourselves short as, as human beings. We're, we're, we're really reducing individual experience to shorthand, as you say, and sort of hashtags and memes on social media that have really very little to do with reality. But we assume that they are reality, and we assume that by using those as tools to fight some kind of revolution, we're doing the right thing. You know, we're doing social justice. Yeah. And sometimes we are, but often we're actually just uh, using an entirely uh, counterproductive sort of set of tools and and vocabulary. The one we had growing up was we only use 10% of our brain. Oh, that's right. I remember that. It was that, uh, and how, was that ever was that ever debunked? I assume it was debunked. Like I don't know where it necessarily even came from. It was just one of those things. It's like the Halloween candy that somebody put razor blades yes. in the right. And as far as I know, no kid has ever died <laughs> from like directly. No, yes, and I talk in the book about the Halloween candy because you know, I talk about growing up in the you know in the seventies, and this is a big big theme in the book. Is that I think I don't know how old you are, but. Like, I'm a generation X person. Okay, so, like, you know, we grew up in the 70s, and, you know, there was this kind of, like, we were sort of on our own as as kids. This was before the helicopter parenting age. Mm -hmm. And then something started happening around the mid to, you know, the the mid-80s or so. Um, Suddenly there was this idea that children were in peril. There was this ridiculous, all these rumors going around about satanic abuses going on in preschools and this was a, a absolute social panic i mean people went to prison over this there were trials um absolutely hysterical and insane and and one of the you know sort of side issues there was that halloween candy was being poisoned or that there were razor blades being stuck in halloween candy and so it was unsafe for children to go trick-or-treating and that was like a complete rumor and conspiracy theory there was actually there were no reported cases of razor blades in candy ever um Mm -hmm. according to the data that i that i dug up when i was working on the book so you know (laughs) yeah i know but that's the thing because like i think that's part of the generation divide that you talk about because we've lived through some of that nonsense like i lived through the 10 percent of the brain there was no razor blades in the halloween candy uh we lived through the when you spend the records backwards you're invoking satan or something i don't really know oh, what that's that, right remember that, that one the beatles uh, paul is dead if you played the beatles records backwards yeah. or something right uh dungeons and dragon was another one where like you were on the path to satan or you would lose i don't know what your life or something but because we lived through these i think our generation genera- generation x has a little bit more skepticism because it's like look we've heard, listened to your stories before and we've already heard a number of them like you guys are on like shaky ground you don't you guys don't have the face for face value anymore it's basically right. you feel like that's kind of like a spark for uh the way that you kind of question and like i'm not sure if i fully agree with all this that we're what we're doing right now well yes but i also really want to emphasize that because we grew up before the age of social media, before the internet, uh, we grew up in an analog world. We, we had a g- great gift of being able to process information on our own mm-hmm. um, at a reasonable speed. We were able to think critically. We were able to actually talk to our friends and talk to the people around us and figure out what's true and sort through facts and sort through ideas. We were not constantly bombarded with information 
uh, on the internet. And I think like it's really important to be to have empathy for just the the way that the entire world and our entire communication system has changed. And so, uh, you know, one of the things I've really come around to in writing the book was that, you know, yes, there are these generational divides when it comes to, um, you know, social justice issues or, or, you know, how to just how to talk about things, the notion of free speech, uh, you know, what's worth talking about and what's not. Um, and it's easy to get irritated, you know, at the ways we don't understand each other. But like, I, there are reasons that we don't understand each other. And, and I, you know, I think if you, if you grow up only um, being able to communicate with people by screens, um, or really only not not that they, you don't have the option of not communicating with them in person, but like a lot of these kids, just for whatever reason, reasons beyond their control, um, their their entire communications and relationships are, are mediated through screens, and you just get a very different sense of reality. And I think your the whole wiring of your brain is different. So I think it's really really important that we recognize that our our brains were just conditioned differently. Um, yeah. And so it's it's really, you know, we need to sort of see what was good about our generation and, and what was less good and, and see what's working with these kids now and what's less and, and sort of try, try to find ways of, of kind of sharing the, the stuff that's good and getting rid of the, the bad stuff. Yeah, because what the bad stuff you're talking about, like you and I both saw the uh, the rise of Jordan Peterson, that documentary from uh, last yes. year, 2019. It's a documentary about the U of T professor, and it it's a very nuanced take. I interviewed yes, uh, it is. Uh, Patricia Marcocha, and um, when I share the interview on social media, I find that I was getting these responses from people who were like, I was getting slammed because I didn't condemn Jordan Peterson, or um, I was being just as evil as Jordan Peterson because I was spreading his platform or whatever. But mm. I was like, I'm like, I'm really just pointing out the documentary so that you could make up your own mind. As you said, we grew up in a time where, like, here are some of the facts, here are some evidence, and now you need to kind of figure out things and critically think. But it's right. this weird thing now of, like, uh, being charged with treason. That, I think, is one of the negative things that you're kind of talking about, where, like, you, you violated some sort of uh, rule or something. Now you got charged with treason. And I'm like, well, where did that come from? Right. So, right, in the case of Jordan Peterson... You know, it has been decided that he is on the wrong side mm -hmm. of the quote-unquote right people. Right? You know, it's like he's on the wrong side of history, or however you want to yeah. frame this. And I don't know when this meeting was because I didn't get invited at all. <laughs> he the, the problem is is that you know, in order to actually the the, thing, the Jordan Peterson case, it, it's both emblematic of this, but also sort of exceptional in that. He is so complicated in what he's saying, and he is not always very concise, and he doesn't do himself a lot of favors in terms of um, boiling his ideas down into the digestible bits that, unfortunately, we need right now. He's, he's sort of not playing by the, by the rules of the day when it comes to um, making your ideas you know, crystal clear uh, for, the, for the hashtag generation. And you know, <laughs> I, I, I applaud him for that, but I also – it makes me worry because um, I think he, he could – maybe be um, less misunderstood if he was a little more invested in, in making himself clear. Now, th that, that said, the ultimate problem is that this, the social reward for piling on somebody like you for posting an interview about th this documentary, the social rewards for, for condemning you 
in the name of condemning Jordan Peterson are so great that people can't resist them. They're going to get likes, mm-hmm. but they're going to get you know retweets. They're going to get praise. The the social penalties for actually giving you a chance to to show what you learned or to listen to you or to listen to both sides or, or entertain the possibility that Jordan Peterson may have, you know, worthwhile contributions to make. The, the penalties for that are huge. And people will say, well, you're an alt-right. You know, if you, you like Jordan Peterson, therefore you must like, you know, fill in the blank, um, whatever, you know, alt-right people, the YouTube yeah. algorithm leads you to when you watch a Jordan Peterson video. You know, so, it, you know, the, the problem is that, like, anyone with any sort of self-protecting instincts is just going to stay out of the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> say, I might agree with you about Jordan Peterson, but I'm not going to bother to uh, let you know that because it's just not worth it. And that's what's really a shame is because, you know, like as I keep saying when I go around and talk about this, if, if the smart, thoughtful people don't step up and start speaking out and and you know, trying to like make an example of nuance and, and try to like say the thing that might get them, um, make them a little unpopular with their friends, but, but really try to speak thoughtfully. Uh, if, if, if we don't do that, the, the stupid thoughtless people are happy to do the job for us. Yeah. And so it's almost like the smart people are smart enough to know that they should shut up. <laughs> yes. And that makes me really scared. Yeah. So then I have you gotten in trouble, I guess, for this book, I guess, for lack of a better term. <laughs> Did you get <laughs> well, sent to the principal's it on, office? It, it depends on what you your definition of getting in trouble. I mean, yeah. th- this is my sixth book. I've always, you know, I have been very fortunate in my career. I've been like somebody who's been embraced by the media establishment. I've gotten well reviewed. I've gotten all the right kind of coverage, you know, throughout my career. And this is the first book where I've gotten very scathing reviews from, you know, the uh, many elite media institutions, um, reviews that, you know, no book is beyond criticism, least of all this one. It's very, very difficult to write a book about this moment. There's no way any writer is going to get it entirely right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, the, you know, there, there, there's much to critique about the book. However, many of the critiques have absolutely nothing to do with what's actually in the book. I mean, I, I read some of these reviews and it's like, I, I don't know what you read. Yeah. You know, like there was a you know pretty good example. Some of the headlines are, um, are really telling. So, you know, there's a moment in the book where I say something like, you know, um, I started, you know, when I was about five years ago, I started to feel this cognitive dissonance about the culture, like, you know, you know, sort of progressive positions that I always assumed my, I was assumed that I was aligned with. I started to feel alienated from, I still consider myself a liberal, but, you know, I'm seeing, I, I, I'm feeling attention with the younger generation. And I say something like, you know, I, I ask myself, am I just feeling some version of get, get off my lawn? There are voices in my head saying that I just want these people to get off my lawn. So it's a self-interrogation, right? Mm -hmm. So the New Yorker, when they reviewed the book quite negatively, the headline of the review was, Megan Dom says to millennials, get off my lawn. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So that's the New Yorker. Yeah. Okay. It's not the National Enquirer. Right. That's the New Yorker. And there should be nuance there. Well, but this is, this is where we are. It's funny that you mentioned, um, uh, Alanis Morissette, because literally just about an hour ago, um, another very negative review came up in, in book forum, 
and um, it says uh, the, the the headline of the review. I mean, it's a great headline, but it just doesn't doesn't represent the book. But the headline was uh, "Jagged Little Red Pill." <laughs> <laughs> That is, a, that is a great title. It's a great headline, but like, you know, I'd say, you know, so it implies that I've been red-pilled. <laughs> yeah. The entire book is talking about the, the you know, how facile it is, the whole concept of red pill, what, this is an assortment of pills, I'm wrestling with this, <laughs> not the red pill, it's this yeah. other thing, but it's like, okay, if, if you don't want to engage with the book, mm-hmm. because the rewards of you know, dunking somebody with this kind of headline are so great, then I guess you do the math. I mean, and I can see online people are loving this. You know, they're they're falling all over themselves, congratulating the author for, you know, writing such a, you know, su- such a sick burn of a, of a headline <laughs> in a review. And it's like, well, I don't know. You know, usually the writers don't write the headline. So yeah. I don't know if she wrote this one or not. But so, you know, that's where we are. So, you know, if, if you call that um, getting in trouble, then I guess yes. I mean, it certainly has been a very different kind of publishing experience than I've had in the past. But, you know, a, a lot of the response just simply underscores what I talk about in the book. I mean, it's, it's completely proving the very point of the book, which is that we we have this, we seem to have found ourselves in this moment where um, thought itself has just been blunted into um something that is has really very little to do with thinking and everything to do with signaling mm-hmm. um, as a way of kind of protecting yourself so you can stay in your club. Yeah, but I, I, I really adore this one Gen X line that you had when you're talking about the, the generation. Uh, it was on page 98. You said, our identities weren't built around indifference, our being the generation. They were built around toughness or at least a simulation of toughness. And I think right. th- that's, I think, like I was saying with the Jordan Peterson thing, like when people like basically charge me with treason for lack of a better term, I'm like, oh, I don't get what I'm supposed to do here. Like, I don't like I just kind of shrug it off. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't really know what I did wrong. And I, you're laughing, too, at the review. And I'm sure it's a bit annoying. But at the same time, there is a there's like a toughness that um that I guess we had and that allows us to make it easier to go through these kind of culture wars. Is that kind of accurate or fair? Yeah, that's, I mean, it is um, one of the ideas that, that I float throughout the book, you know, this idea that we grew up almost fetishizing toughness, like we wanted to show, you know, that, you know, we were, that we didn't need our parents, like we wanted to show that we were not vulnerable, it was all about kind of keeping a stiff upper lip, I mean, obviously, these are huge generalizations, and so, you know, and then we would, you know, Gen X, was, we were always supposed to be aloof, you know, we didn't need anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, you know, I think that for for various reasons, you see with with millennials and Gen Z people, you know, there's a similar fetishization of the idea of fairness. You know, what's what's fair, or how do I, you know, how do I be inclusive? Now, those are good things. Like, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. That it's 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 great to to think about fairness. Um, it's great to think about inclusion, but you can also take that too far. I think that Gen X often took toughness too far. There was a lot of bullying back in the yeah. 70s and the 80s. And, you know, basically up until the 90s, schoolyard bullying was just accepted as a rite of passage. part of life. And that wasn't healthy. You know, it's funny if you watch uh, Stranger Things, uh, the television show set in the 1980s, you know, there's about these teenagers, they're so mean to each other. They're constantly <laughs> bullying each other and yeah. kind of beating each other up and just being jerks. And it's pretty remarkable because 
it, I think that they, they really get that right. Like that was just part of life. And there was a hierarchy in the school. There was the kid that got beat up. There was the kid who beat that kid up. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a, there was a sort of social hierarchy and, you know, that still exists to, to a large degree. But um, I, I think that it may have just been that we automatically accepted that there was a sort of pecking order and you had to kind of just like stand up for yourself in a way that that doesn't you know really manifest quite the same way. Now the the, the bullying that goes on now takes place online. Yeah, <laughs> and it's much much worse. I mean, Jonathan Haidt has written about this in, in the Coddling of the American Mind, and he has you know really good data on this. I think the conditions are much worse for kids now because like they can't even get away from the schoolyard bully when they go home. It's it's happening 24 hours a day online with in-group, out-group shunning, um, you know, people casting each other out. So, you know, let, let's not do ourselves that the bullying has gone away. It's just taken on a, a different form. So, um, you know, the, the toughness, you know, we, we can brag about being tough, but I guess, you know, it, it takes an incredible amount of resilience to, to tolerate somebody canceling you on social media. Mm-hmm. And this is all, you know, this, this is like... <laughs> unfolding before us. I don't know that we'll even have any idea what the effects of this are for, for years on down. Yeah. So kind of related to that, then like the challenge we had growing up then in terms of our generation was to be seen and to be heard. You as a writer, you had to go through legacy media, right? You couldn't publish a blog in the eighties or anything like that, or like start a podcast. Now, I guess has it shifted now where you can be seen and you can be heard because you can start a YouTube channel, you can start a podcast, but now it's the challenge to be understood. Is that the next now difficult phase? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I mean, it was harder to break in um, back then. You have to get through legacy media. Obviously, you had to have a certain amount of privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to be somebody who was able to be in the right place at the right time. You had to have certain resources. Uh, I'm not saying it, you know, I, I do believe like writing is a meritocracy. I, I, I think like, you know, good writing will rise to the top, but yeah, I mean, it definitely, it was, it was harder to get in once you were in though, um, there, it was just a lot easier to be interesting (laughs) for lack of a better (laughs) way of putting it. You had more space, you had editors, you had people working with you who were, saving you from yourself. I mean, that's what editors do. They save writers from themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was so lucky as a young person, I was able to take risks with my writing and sort of float ideas and say things that, you know, were controversial or or thought provoking. But I was always, I had a sort of safety net in that I had editors making sure I was being totally clear about it. Um, It was being published in places that had a sort of, you know, imprimatur of, of credibility. Um, and the other thing is I didn't get – I wasn't instantly barraged with hateful tweets the, the minute I wrote something. If, yes. if people got angry, which they frequently did, you know, they would maybe write a letter to the editor, and I would maybe see it six weeks later, and, mm. you know, I'd be on to the next thing. So I didn't have this anticipatory anxiety when I, when I wrote the way, the way people do now. So, but, yeah, I mean, but getting back, I think that, like, the challenge – the challenge now is is being it's not being heard it's being understood mm-hmm. and it's being heard um on you know in, in the complexity uh that that you're trying to work in i mean you know my book it's you know i my book to me it's like part of the reason i think it's 
been hard for people to receive. It's just like it's it's operating on a number of levels. Like it's it is about the political moment, but it's also about about aging and it's about divorce. It's about feelings of relevance. It's about you know it's I it's it's about like what it means to be a thinking person. What it means to um, you know see technology spinning past the place you can understand like it's trying to do a lot of things at once and like ultimately it's like I'm a creative person like I'm trying to do something on an art level here as well and I think that that is almost impossible for a lot of people to respond to yeah uh, given the response platforms it makes you complex right because it's like if the book had just been just the gen x theme or just the aging theme and that was it then it's like that almost makes it more kind of going back to what you were saying about Jordan Peterson, that almost makes it more digestible because it's like, okay, she's just like, like the New Yorker uh, review, right? Like, get off my lawn. Like, she's clearly taking this position right. or something. But because right. you're balancing all these different issues and you do get into personal stuff like the, the divorcing, aging and stuff like that. So yeah. was there ever, out of all these different topics then, was there any like self-censorship that kind of came in or like, I can't say this because this would be too far or <laughs> I knew that I would get in trouble like... Between uh, all of these, because they're, they're all kind of like controversial in a way. They're all landmines, right? So <laughs> once you step on yeah, them. I, I mean, look, I can tell you this. I I probably wrote four times as much material as actually in the book. I mean, it's a short book, and I probably wrote like, you know, 800 pages. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, all told, like, it was very, very hard. It was like playing whack-a-mole because I'd be trying to, like, talk about something that was going on in the culture and then you know i'd write about it for a few weeks and then the moment would pass and it would just seem totally unnecessary um yeah but no there are definitely places that i didn't go um either because i decided it wasn't worth it or you know in talking with my publisher they felt that you know if i if i talked about certain things that 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 would be the thing that, you know, the only thing anybody would respond to. I mean, you know, for example, I wanted to write, I, I had written many, many pages about the case of James Damore, who was the engineer at Google, who wrote a, famously wrote a memo talking about the diversity hiring policies. And, you know, the, the company had this, had this mission to get, you know, 50-50 representation, male and female, mm-hmm. among coders, computer coders. And he was talking about, well, he was just sort of asking the question of, you know, is this feasible? Because the fact is, you have so many fewer women coming out of school as as coders. And, you know, you can ask yourself why this is. Is it discrimination? Is it because they're less interested? Is it because, you know, of all these things? And he said, you know, maybe it's really not worth it to try to get, you know, to 50-50. And, you know, because, like, if they're not there, if, if they want to do other things, let them do other things. Yeah. And this got completely, uh, completely mistranslated. And everybody had, first of all, it was supposed to be an internal memo and it got leaked. And then every, basically the entire media establishment decided to report that he had said that women are not as capable, uh, that they're not as, that they're not as good. They're not as competent and therefore we shouldn't hire them. Now that's not what he said at all. Mm-hmm. He was saying, um, he never said they weren't as competent. He was saying there's, there's data that indicates that women are good at a lot of things and so they have the option of doing things other than coding, whereas men who tend to be coders are really only good at coding. So that's why they're more likely to go yes. into it. Um, and so it, it seems reasonable. Thing, yeah, I mean, and the, and the thing is, it just he was completely vilified. He was turned into a monster. He was fired from Google. 
and he really he just to me is representative of this the sort of mass media malpractice that we see when these issues are covered you know we we saw it again with like the Covington Catholic School thing I don't know if you followed that but that was a yeah. thing in the U.S. yeah about a year ago where like some video was captured and some high school kids at a rally you know a very small snippet of video looked like they were being racist toward a and a Native American activist, and you know the story was completely different. But the media was just so fixated on this narrative of you know that evil white man mm-hmm. um, that they absolutely refused to get the facts. So anyway, but the, I, I had written a lot about the the Google memo situation and um, ended up not including it in the book because we worried that. Um, that would be the only thing that reviewers mentioned. Like, you know, instead of the review saying, get off my lawn, it would mm-hmm. say, um, M- Megan says, uh, Google memo monster was right or something like <laughs> yes. that. So I don't know. Um, but, you know, part of me wishes I had included more. Um, but I'm also seeing, um, you know, what would have happened if I did. So I don't, I don't know. I, it's really... <laughs> <laughs> it's really a strange moment that we're in. Yeah. So as we wrap up, then, are you an optimist or an idealist? Like, can we find our way back to somehow nuance <laughs> and like thinking and critical reasoning and like yeah. supporting women have- and like just simple things? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I really have to say I'm I'm very hopeful. You know, just the process of going out and talking about this book, it's been profound you know like i it's funny not to obsess about this new yorker review it doesn't really matter in the scheme of things since we keep mentioning like you know by for example like the the day that that review came out i was on book tour i i flew to seattle i remember i got to my hotel room suddenly that review was out everyone was like oh my god oh no it's been decided this book is a failure it's terrible it's been Mm -hmm. you know the new yorker has decreed that Mm -hmm. you know she's wrong and I went to a the bookstore event in Seattle and to do my reading and my in my talk and it was packed. People were crying people were thanking me, people were sharing their stories of how they want more nuance in the discussion. They're so tired of the reductive discourse on social media these are liberals these are progressives these are people in seattle this was like (laughs) capitol hill these were the npr listening volvo Mm -hmm. driving you know bernie sanders voting (laughs) (laughs) whatever like and they were tired of it and so i see it again and again and again is that there's this major gulf between what kind of the last gasps of quote-unquote elite media um, is pushing and what regular, smart, educated, thoughtful people want to talk about and think about. And mm-hmm. I really, people are, are ravenous for a, a more nuanced discussion. And I hear from them all day, every day, and I see them at events. And I, I really think that we're poised for some kind of shift. I, I don't think we can continue to have this sort of discourse, the cancel culture, the um, the unwillingness to talk about certain issues. I think like a lot of the stuff coming up around transgender issues um, is going to force more nuanced discussion because it just, if you care about anybody, including tr- trans people, um, we cannot just, uh, that's another thing I didn't talk about in the book because it would have probably hijacked the discussion. But yeah. I think that um, people are really, really, 
desperate to to move on to the next phase. So so I am hopeful actually. I'm excited to be honest with you. That's great. Yeah. I mean again growing up like theme we had growing up was the um we got to help the handicap. We got to address the handicap. We have to deal with the handicap. <laughs> You're not it, allowed to use the word handicap anymore. Yes, I, but yes. You know what I mean? But that was it yes. was like this they were like this one blob of people. Well, they all have, like, the blind guy has different needs than the deaf guy. Like, you know what I mean? So it's not like you can just right. put a ramp out and then, like, there we solved everything for the for this group right. of people. Well, I mean, that's the thing is identity is not a political position, mm-hmm. right? Identity is not ideology. So the more we decide that we're going to, you know, that, that inclusivity has to do with slicing people into finer and, you know, finer and more finely and finely sliced groups, uh, the more we deny people's individuality. And, and when you deny people their individuality, you're denying them their humanity. Yeah. You know, it's true. It's a valid point. Like, I have a friend who is blind, and people kind of, like, they often initiate conversations when they first meet him, and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Sorry this happened to you. Like, there's this weird apology, and, like, some people have even said to him, I'm sorry that you're not normal. Like, it's this weird, <laughs> weird mm-hmm. thing that people do, like, right, right up front. And I'm like, why are you making this song? But it, it's this weird hang-up where people, they, they feel like they need to put it out in the open and kind of address it and acknowledge it. And it's like, there's no elephant in the room. It's fine. Like, we can all move on, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think so much of it has to do with needing more in-person interaction. So much stuff takes place online mm-hmm. where everything is being monitored and, again, reduced to little bits, and you can't sense somebody's body language, their their reaction. There's no sort of give and take organically as humans um, when everything is conducted um, in, this, in this artificial way. So I, I think we really... Um, we're going to have to move past it. And and I think, yeah, people are desperate to and and ready to. Yeah, ravenous was a great word. I appreciate the fact that you used it because I do find that when I go online on social media or Twitter or Facebook or something, I'm actually like, it's junk food. There's no nutrients. I I don't get anything out of it. Whereas then when I go read like something like your book or whatever, I'm like, now that was a satisfying meal. Now I can like take a nap now and like I feel like I'm full. <laughs> That's great to hear. I mean, I do think that, you know, ultimately I think a lot of this is about loneliness. People are really lonely and so they they form these these affiliations online, tribally. It's like an artificial sense of community and, and it comes out of loneliness and you know, I I became a writer because I wanted to to articulate things that people were maybe thinking and feeling but didn't feel they could say out loud. Mm-hmm. And and I and I want people to feel less lonely. Um, and so, if anything, um, you know, I, I wrote the book because I was feeling a sense of loneliness. And so, if if reading it can help people feel less alone, then that's like the best possible outcome, as far as I'm concerned. All right, that's a positive note. We can end it there. We covered a lot. Uh, we covered like Gen X. We covered toughness. We covered uh, funny reviews. Um, and of course, the book is the problem with everything uh, my journey through the culture wars should i ask where people can find you online or is that bad or <laughs> oh sure yeah after all that yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um well um i'm uh i'm on twitter at at megan underscore dom and that's spelled m-e-g-h-a-n underscore d as in david a-u-m as in mary um i have a facebook author page I have a website, megandom.com. 
Um, I am not on Instagram. I recently learned there were like a couple of fake Instagram accounts that were sort of impersonating me. Um, so oh, okay. I, I kind of so if you see those, um, that's not me. Mm. <laughs> I'm not on Instagram. Um, but yeah, I'm um, I'm easy to find. You know, mm-hmm. I, I teach writing workshops, uh, private writing workshops in my apartment, and, and more and more people are coming actually because they want to, as writers, try to break break past some of this stuff and 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 write honestly. So um, yeah, there's there's all sorts of ways to find me. Is there going to be a follow up? Like, uh, are you going to continue like for the next book that you're writing? Like- <laughs> I don't know. Um, or you just I want may, to go back uh, to like, peace and quiet. I may add some material. For, the paperback will come out um, later this year, so I, I may add some material there. But um, I don't know. I, I'm, I've got different ideas. I, I definitely want to do more work in the realm of the sort of idea of having more nuance and, and encouraging people to, to have conversations and, and have a safe space to, to say, like, I don't know, or I'm still thinking this through, or, you know, like, let's yeah. – Let's have a rational conversation um, where we can explore things in complexity without yeah. um, annihilating ourselves. Thank you. Please do it. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Uh, that's Thank it. you, Sammy. <laughs> it was a great talk. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yo, welcome to Notes and Noteworthy. Just going to wrap up here. Um what I appreciate about Megan Dom's The Problem With Everything is that she's thinking out loud. That is a rare skill these days. We get a small window between an event and the established narrative. A God of mercy on your soul if you try to wander or deviate from the established narrative. And so once that narrative is set, it becomes harder to think out loud. You get those don't trespass kind of signs, those ominous signs you see in the woods in those movies. Dave Cullen wrote a uh, meticulously researched book called Columbine about the uh, school shooting. And he quickly dismantled this neat and tidy narrative that the kids were bullied and therefore reacted violently. It's not true at all. Even many of the survivors attempted to dispute this narrative. It just failed to gain traction in the media. Real life is not like, uh, it's not like a movie where we can edit it to suit our narratives. In this conversation with Megan, she articulates something I've intuitively understood but haven't been able to fully express. As Generation X, we grew up in an era where we had time to formulate our thoughts. We had time to think. We didn't have to battle an established narrative as much as we were trying to figure things out. That that I'm nostalgic for. Of course, all this was easier because we were all reacting from this exact same sources. The 6 o'clock news, Rolling Stone magazine... Who knows what people are consuming these days to come up with their perspective? All kinds of like weird Twitter accounts and YouTube videos and like we're not all on the same page anymore. And it shows. Time is a luxury. We don't view it that way, but it is. And when you can spend time to think, to sort out your thoughts and the images and the feelings tumbling through your head and to iron out the wrinkles in your logic by expressing yourself, that is so valuable. I'm not willing to give up that luxury for whatever passes for online justice or social media karma points. If this puts me on the wrong side of history, (laughs) whatever that means, that's such a ridiculous phrase. I'm good with this, clearly, because as Generation X, I've learned from many 80s movies that when people attempt to be something they are not 
and try to fit in with the cool kids. They quickly discover the cool kids are often shallow and it's just not that fun. The takeaway lesson is it's better to be who you are. This is what Megan Dom did with The Problem With Everything. The book is personal as much as, as it is universal. In Neil deGrasse Tyson's Letters from an Astrophysicist, on page 231, he writes, So I don't quite know what to say to people who react explosively in the face of objective truths, attacking the person who delivers the information. But what's clear is that we now live in a world where differences of opinion lead to fights rather than conversations. Yo, yeah, that makes no sense. If you want to continue this conversation, I am on Twitter, Facebook, and IG. All three are my pal Sammy. I am Sam Yunin, and this has been My Summer Lair. Thank you for listening to me in a Netflix world. Pop culture, yo.